Hey, uh, when, I was, um, when I was a junior in college, I was about uh, 20 years old, and uh, I had a desire to, uh, to travel. I had a desire to go uh, and, and explore the world. And uh, one of the places that really caught my eye was Costa Rica. And Biola University, where I was going to school, they had this program where you could go to Costa Rica uh, for four or five months, study for an entire semester. And uh, it, it, one of the cool features of the program was that you were to be adopted by a Costa Rican family, or a Tican family, as, it, as they are known in Costa Rica. You were to be adopted by a Tican family. Uh, as a student, you were to go over there, you were to uh, begin your studies in Spanish and culture and different, uh, different elements over there, and you were to be so immersed that you would live with the Tekin family over there. And I thought, well, this is going to be great. You know, they're going to, they're going to open up their arms to me. I'm going to come in. It's going to be a great experience. And uh, sure enough, I get to Costa Rica. I fly down there, uh, 20 years of age, and, and, and I show up to the, to, to, the, to the classroom, and all the families are gathered there with all the students, and they're calling out the names of the families, and they're putting together family with American students, Tekin family with American students, and off we go to our new home for the next four or five months. And I remember meeting my family, very nice family, uh, uh, the, the father, Carlos, the mother, Maria, and they had, uh, the, had three kids, two older boys and a younger daughter. And I remember going home with them, being their, their newly adopted son, expecting it to be just a glorious experience, a great experience. Well, over time, I came to learn uh, that this family, I was about the 15th American student that they had adopted for this program. Here I was, I went over to Costa Rica thinking, wow, what an experience I'm going to give them. They're going to learn about American culture. They're going to learn what it means to be a hip, cool 20-year-old man and from the U.S. of A. And lo and behold, I was about the 15th student they had had. Well, folks, when I had found that out, all of a sudden, my idea of being adopted by this family and being ushered into this family and being brought in as a, as a son just kind of dissipated. I realized I was just one in the crowd. And, and, and it just, all of a sudden, the meaning of that adoption and the meaning of that uniting with the new family, it just fell flat for me. And in fact, the rest of the experience uh, uh, was, was a little bit troublesome at home. It was, it was frustrating. They, they didn't pay much attention to me. I guess I wasn't that interesting. I don't know. They just kind of said, okay, here's your bed, here's your food, now go do your thing. And I'm like, what kind of son am I? So I, you know, I was a little heartbroken. I, I bring this out this morning to indicate, to, to, to share with us adoption. When we are adopted into a family, when we are brought into a family new from outside, sometimes when that happens, the process whereby we fully in transition and fully ingrain into the life of that new family is a, is a little is a little difficult a little rough edges the transition's not always so smooth in fact sometimes it's the case that the parents have a hard time adjusting to the one who they've adopted other times the one adopted has a tough time adjusting to their 
new father or mother. The family dynamic is difficult in adoption, though admirable. And when done right, it can be the most beautiful of things. My experience was not that. My adoption was not beautiful. It was tough. I felt rather insignificant, rather worthless. But there's a kind of adoption in the Bible that is a far cry from what I experienced in Costa Rica. There is a kind of adoption in the Bible whereby God, through Christ, brings you and me into His family. And that adoption isn't difficult. It isn't awkward. It is perfectly harmonious in God's family. When we are adopted by our Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ the Son, we are fully given the rights of sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. When we are adopted by God through Christ, we become full sons, full daughters, true sons, true daughters. Heavenly Father, I pray that You would bless this study as we look into Your Word, as we consider what it means to be adopted by You, our Abba Father. Show us the beauty of that transaction, Father, the beauty of that moment as You have brought us in to Your family forever. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The title of my message today is Adopted by, Abba's, by, uh, by Abba Father. Adopted by Abba Father. Turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. Turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. Adopted by, by Abba Father. It says, uh, before, actually before we read, I wanted to give you a brief background on Galatians. We haven't been here yet. This is a first time study in uh, the book of Galatians. Actually, I believe it's the first time I've preached in it here at Coast. Uh, Paul is the author of the letter to the churches of Galatia. And remember, a letter is a letter. Remember? From Philemon. We, 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 we had it in written form a couple weeks ago and we read it as a letter. Well, we're not going to read Galatians as a letter today. We're not going to have the time to read through it in its entirety. But know this, it's a letter. It's a letter. And it was written by Paul sometime, uh, perhaps even as early as 48 AD, though likely in the early 50s. It was written by Paul to a scattering of churches in Asia Minor. Uh, Paul had planted new churches, and uh, he had brought forth new converts to Christianity. Some Jewish converts had turned to Christ. Many Gentile converts had turned to Christ, away from pagan idolatry. And Paul now, having planted these new churches, uh, he's wishing to write to them because there's a problem. You see, after Paul had planted these churches and told them about salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, Jewish authorities from the synagogue and from Jerusalem began to infiltrate these churches. They began to come into these churches and began to whisper in the people's ears saying, no, 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 it's not merely by grace through faith in Messiah. It's also by the works of the law that you are justified. 
And so the new Christians, not having received adequate training, being so new in the faith, they were listening to these whispers and wondering, well, is it by grace through faith that we're saved? Or is it also by the works of the law that we are saved? Which is it? And they were confused. And so Paul writes to clarify the confusion. And he writes strongly, he says, hey, it's vanity. It is absolutely vain for a Christian saved by faith in Christ to return to the works of the law. Paul likened the law to bondage, to slavery. He says if you go back to the law of Moses, you are returning to bondage, to slavery. And so we come to Galatians chapter 4, verses 1-7. through 7. Paul says this, Now I say that the heir, he's speaking of the heir of God, we'll get to that in a moment, someone who is an heir of God, as long as he is a child does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons." And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Now, before we analyze this in much detail, it is important to to bring out something. It's It's a little technical, but man, I'll tell you, it is the key to unlocking so much of the New Testament. All right? if, there's, if there's one key to unlocking so much of the riches of the New Testament, it is the pronouns that you see in the epistles. Take a look for a moment. Notice the pronouns here. I know it's a little hard to see with that, that backdrop. <coughs> You've got we's and you's in the book of Galatians. You've got it all throughout the book of Galatians, actually. Most prominently, uh, th- this, this pronoun issue comes through in the book of Ephesians. And if you don't understand pronouns in Ephesians, you're going to miss the book of Ephesians entirely. You're going to miss the letter. Because by these pronouns, Paul is making a very significant point. Now, not, in our study today, the implications of it are not going to be widespread. But if you miss the point of the pronouns in Ephesians, again, you'll miss the whole letter. The pronouns are these. We've got we's and we've got you's and yours and ours. When Paul says we, friends, by and large, and this is not universal, but by and large, when Paul says we in his epistles, he means to say me and my Jewish brothers. When Paul says we, he means to say me and my Jewish brothers. The Jewish people. The Israelites. We. Our when he says you and your, and when he, he separates himself, when he distances himself a little bit from his audience, by and large, generally speaking, he means to speak of the Gentiles. He means to speak of those who are not Jews, of those who have been grafted in to the kingdom of God by faith in Christ. Now, folks, again, for our study today, this is not going to have widespread application or implication, but I want you to see it. Because as you read your Bibles, particularly the epistles, 
it is so important to realize who is Paul speaking about and who is Paul speaking to. As uh, one uh, seminary professor put it, we all know who you are and who we are, but in Paul's book, we always need to know who is we and who are you. Did you get that? Oh, you missed it? I'll say it again. We all know who you are and who we are, but in Paul's book, we always need to know who is we and who are you. Everybody understand that? All right, good. That was John Niemelin. had to throw that in there. One of my favorite quotes. Now, let's go to verse 1. Let's go to verses 1 and 2. It says this in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. Now I say, Paul says, that the heir, the heir of God, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Hey, how many of you remember the story of Batman? Raise your hand if you've seen Batman. Have you read the comic books? Have you seen the movies? All right. I've got Batman behind me. You guys see him there? There he is. Remember that Batman? Who remembers that Batman? All right. Who doesn't know of that Batman? Okay, good. No, no. All right, we got one. Brian, you've never seen that Batman. How old are you, Brian? You're 16? Why? How come you haven't seen that Batman before? That's very current. That's a very current Batman. In fact, that's the next episode, the next movie coming out. That's what he looks like. Yeah, there's Batman up there. Well, folks, you know, Batman, we have the story of Batman, right? Well, actually, you know what? I want to bring out the other Batman. I want to, I want to bring Brian. Brian, here, Brian, take a look. All right, Brian, ready? There you go, Brian. Are you happy now? Is that the Batman you know and love? Okay, there he is. It's hard to see. There he is. Okay, he's a little bit different than the guy on the left. Now, Batman... Bruce Wayne, the boy, he grew up in Gotham City. We all know the story. And as a young lad, his parents, Dr. Thomas and Martha Wayne, the parents of Bruce Wayne, well, they were a millionaire family. They had tons of money. The father was a surgeon, a philanthropist, the mother a very well-to-do woman in the community. And lo and behold, one day, they are mugged and shot and killed in an alley in Gotham City. Uh, the movies indicate that it was the Joker who had done it, no less, but actually the, the original comic books indicate that it was an anonymous mugger, an anonymous murderer. So the movies aren't always correct there. But, but Bruce Wayne's parents murdered on the streets of Gotham. Bruce Wayne, the boy, no mom, no dad. What happens? At that moment, friends when Bruce Wayne's parents were killed on the streets in the alley of Gotham City, at that moment, Bruce Wayne inherited the entirety of his family's estate. The entirety of it. But as a child, as a minor, Bruce was legally incapable of accessing and using his family's riches. Though he was an heir and the rightful owner of his father's and mother's estate, the boy Bruce Wayne was no different than the butler. Who was the butler's name? Alfred. Thank you, Tom. You remember Alfred, Tom? Here, I got some Alfred shots for you. Remember, which Alfred do you like, Tom? Do you know which Alfred you like the best? You, like, you don't like Michael Caine. I like the guy in the middle. Okay, here we go. There's our Alfreds. What's my point here? Bruce Wayne, when his parents died, he became the heir. Millions of dollars, but he could not even access it because he was a minor. 
He had no ability to touch it. He was no better off than the butler, the hired gun, the hired servant, because he was a minor. He was not of rightful age. Okay, what is, what is the point of this illustration? Paul, in verses 1 and 2 of Galatians chapter 4, is giving you and me the story of Israel. Friends, Israel was appointed by God to be the heir, to be the inheritor, to be the one through whom God would bless all the nations of the world. But Israel was like a child when she received that promise. She was like a minor. And like a child, she needed to be tutored. She needed to be instructed. She needed to be under the guardianship of a butler. And that butler's name was the Law of Moses. That was Israel's tutor. That was Israel's guide. That's perfectly what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, just a few verses earlier. Notice what it says. It says, But before faith came, we were kept, we being Israel, notice the pronoun, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you, and by implication Paul and his brethren, are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The law of Moses was like the butler watching over Bruce Wayne. It was Israel's tutor. It was his guide. It was to meant to bring him toward final inheritance. Now, Alfred was a very kind caretaker. He and Bruce Wayne had a very mutually cooperative relationship. And although they didn't always get along, they... They always shared a laugh together. They had a good time together as guardian and child. But Israel's relationship with her guardian, with the law of Moses, was not so encouraging. In fact, Israel's guardian became Israel's God. And so Paul continues in verse 3. Notice verse 3 of Galatians chapter 4. It says this, Even so we, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. Even so, we, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. How many of you love to hike? Raise your hand if you're a hiker. Terrell, I know you're a hiker. How come I know? All right. And now, Terrell, what, what do you like about hiking? Do you like the path, Terrell, or do you like reaching that final destination? Are you more of a, hey, look at, smell the flowers kind of guy, or do you just want to say, honey, we're going to get to the end? The end of the day, all right, my kind of man, a destination kind of man. I like that. Hiking, you know, we've got some people who enjoy the path, some people who go for the final destination. Friends, Paul says, Paul says in verse 3 that Israel was on a path. As children, waiting for the fullness, the final destination on the path, to inheritance with God, Israel was walking on the path. They were walking on the law of Moses, being tutored by God's law. They were on the path 
leading to the final destination, which is Christ. But for some strange reason, as they awaited the full measure of their inheritance found at the destination of Christ, they began to love the pathway and not the destination. They began to admire the pathway and became enamored by it. And instead of continuing to their final destination, where their inheritance could truly be found, they sought to find it instead around the place that they were standing in the law of Moses. Israel's law, meant to be her tutor, her path, created to lead her to Christ, became her God. Her guardian had become her deity. And when it did, Israel became enslaved to it. As Paul put it in verse 3, he says, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. Elements meaning elementary principles or basic principles. What other basic principle is there to the Jew other than the law of Moses? Paul's saying here that Israel, as they were children, on the path leading to final destination in Christ, they stayed on the path. They stopped walking. And when they stopped walking, they began to love the path. They began to elevate the path to the status of destination. And they became enslaved to it. They became enslaved to that elementary path, the law of Moses, which was meant to bring them to their final destination. But while Israel stayed on the path, God was not done with her yet. Just like He's not done with any of us when we may be enslaved to our present path. You know, a lot of us, we, we're on a path. You know, we're, we're admiring where we're at right now. We're looking around on the ground and we're saying, wow, look at, look at look where, where I've arrived. I've arrived. But you haven't arrived. You're on the path. You haven't arrived. You're on the path. And that final destination is when we hear, well done, good and faithful servant by our Lord Jesus Christ. God, however, He shows grace to those who are enamored by their path. And He enters, in the midst of bondage and slavery, He enters, puts Himself into the situation in verse 4 and 5. Notice Galatians 4, 4 and 5. It says, But when the fullness of time, of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Friends, just when Israel had reached the point of utterly misappropriating the law of God, God sent His people, the One who was to be the ultimate hope. Jesus, God's Son, born into this world as a Jew, born under the law. He was sent to usher into, into the to usher into all of humanity release from bondage, release from freedom, release from the path that they had become enamored by. He was to take them out of slavery, away from the works of the law, and into relationship, into full relationship, into the family of God by faith in Christ. The Son came to redeem, 
Notice verse 5. To redeem. That is to buy back God's children who had previously purchased the lie of salvation by works of the law. And the opportunity, the opportunity for relationship with the Father had now been restored in Christ. And yet I stress opportunity. And that's what Paul stresses. He says that we might receive the adoption of sons. Paul says it's no foregone conclusion. It's available to us. It's opportunity to us. Christ has come. He's paid the price. Sin is done with. The law is done with. The path that we've been enamored by, wiped away in Christ by the blood of Christ. And now you have opportunity to come to Him in faith. That we might receive the adoption of sons. Here we see Paul, folks, giving his countrymen, Israel, the Jews, every opportunity, every motivation to attain to that final destination as heirs of God by faith in Messiah. Oh, they had previously come to faith in Messiah, but they were being taken away by the Judaizers, by those who had come from the synagogues and from Jerusalem, whispering in their ears, saying, no, no, it's not by grace through faith in Christ, it's by the law. Paul says, ignore that. Stay on the path toward Christ. And you will receive the blessings of God. You will receive full heirship, full inheritance. How would God's children respond now that Christ had come? How did Israel respond when Christ came? Our history books, our history statements in the Bible indicate that the first century Jewish response to Jesus was underwhelming, to say the least. The Gospel of John says this in John 1.11. says, He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. That is to say, He came to His own countrymen, but by and large, His own countrymen rejected Him. But those who did receive Him, as many as received Him, to them He gave, gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in His name. History demonstrates that despite Paul's pleas to his Jewish brethren, many of them did not turn to faith in Christ in the first century. But in the midst of Israel's stumbling, in the midst of Israel's temporary fall from the Lord, God has extended the blessings of His inheritance to another group of people, namely to you and to me, the Gentiles. Take a look at Galatians 3. Verses 26 through 29. Notice what Paul says here about what has happened. He says, For you, you Gentiles, notice your pronouns, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. There is no more Jew or Greek. There is neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs, according to the promise. Romans 11, 11, and 12. Paul reminds us of the blessings that we received despite Israel's fall. He says, But through Israel's fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Now think about that for a moment. Remember what Israel is supposed to be. Remember what Israel will be one day. God has made it very clear throughout the Scriptures, Israel was to be the means by which all the nations 
of the world are blessed. Israel, God's chosen people, were to be the means by which all the nations of the world are to be blessed. And Paul says, Israel fell for a time in his day. And yet salvation, blessing, has come to you and to me. The opportunity for entrance into the kingdom has been flung wide open. The door's open. And we can have the inheritance of eternal life. But, recognize this. We received that blessing of eternal life when Israel had fallen. When Israel was at its weakest. When Israel was not doing what God had asked her to do. So how much more so, he says, will blessing come to all the nations of the world when Israel is doing what she is designed to do? Let me say that again. How much more so will blessings come to you and to me when Israel is doing what she was designed to do? If we received eternal life when Israel fell, how much more so will we be blessed when Israel is doing what God has asked of them? Paul says, you can't fathom the blessings of God that are yet to come. We can't fathom the blessings of God that are yet to come in His kingdom when His people are doing what they've been called to do. Paul says, can you believe this? Can you believe this? If you Gentiles have become children of God during Israel's time of stumbling, how much more blessed by God will you be when Israel was doing, is doing what God designed her to? Verse 4 again, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And now verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Let me translate a little bit here. Paul says, and because you Gentiles, in verse 6, because you are also sons, as I've already explained previously in chapter 3, you too are accumulating, are gathering in yourself the glorious riches that I bestow upon all who believe upon the name of my Son. Among the many blessings that we have as an inheritance by faith in Christ, we have justification. We are made right before God. We have righteousness. God has given us His righteousness. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who guides us each and every day. We have eternal life. Friends, we have so much in Christ. We have adoption. We have sonship, and we'll get to those here as we conclude in just a few moments. We have so many blessings. And among those blessings that we have through Christ is the ability to call God our Abba Father. Notice that in verse 6. He says, Because you are sons, God sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba Father. Now, uh, everybody's got pet names, right? You got pet names for your wife or for your husband or for your significant other or maybe your mom or your dad. We have different pet names that we like to use of our family members and friends, right? Uh, 
I have a number of uh, pet names for my wife, you know, affectionate names, uh, things like Hot Mama. I call her that a lot. And, right, honey? S- sometimes, okay. Now, 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 the thing about pet names, okay, is no one else gets to call Casey that but me. Right? James Reese last week, he tried to call Casey that. And I said, James, I said, you can't be doing that, man. I mean, it's, only, it's mine. That's my pet name. I'm just kidding. Now, pet names. What am I saying? Pet names. They're only to be said by the one who's bestowed it, by the one who's given it. When you have a pet name for your spouse, for your husband, for your wife, for your child's mom or dad, you are the one who gets to say that pet name. No one else gets to say that pet name. You want me to get it? Anybody want to get it? Want to get the phone? <laughs> All right. You are the one who gets to use that pet name. No one else. No one else. Folks, Abba Father, in verse 6. Abba Father is an affectionate name. Abba Father is an affectionate, deep, intimate name. It was used by Jesus Christ of His Father. Jesus Christ, in Mark chapter 14, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Awaiting death, he fell to his knees, broken, beaten, looking at the cup before him, the cross before him, saying, God, I don't wish this, but not my will, but your will be done. You know what he called God at that moment? He called him his Abba Father. He said, Abba Father, take this cup away from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. The most affectionate term for God, Abba Father. Abba, Aramaic for Papa or Daddy. Abba Father. Abba Father was an affectionate name. We might call it a, a pet name that Jesus had for His Father. And herein lies the beauty of this affectionate term. Herein lies the beauty. Though ancient Jewish fathers forbid anyone from calling them Abba except their children. Jesus encouraged all of us to call His Father Abba. Though ancient Jewish fathers forbid anyone other than their children from calling them Abba, Jesus encouraged all of us to call His Father Abba. Brendan Manning brings out this glorious truth. He says, Jesus, the beloved Son, does not hoard this experience for Himself like so many of the Jewish children did. Instead, He invites and calls us to share the same intimate and liberating relationship. Now adopted into God's family by faith in Christ, we too are encouraged to call God our Abba, Father. Jesus asks us to. He says, use my affectionate name for my Father. Now what does that tell us? What does that teach us? I said at the start, in adoption it is often the case that parents... Uh, they find it a bit difficult, and it's, it's natural. I, I've spoken to parents who have adopted, 
And uh, I've heard it said many times that they find it often difficult to bestow the same love, the same care, the same affection that they might otherwise give to their natural-born children. Try as they might, there often exists a very slight difference between their interaction with their adopted children and the ones from natural birth. Try as they might. But friends, that's in the human experience of adoption. In the spiritual experience of adoption, when God adopts you and me by faith in Christ, He brings us so far in, so far into His family, that He asks us to call Him the name that only His Son could call Him. Abba, Father. He brings us so far into His family. He tells us to call Him precisely what His Son calls Him. Our Heavenly Father looks upon us with the same love, the same care, the same affection that He has toward His Son. And that is why the Apostle John can say what he says in 1 John 3.1, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called Children of God. I don't have a, a one, two, three point today. I want to leave you with this and this alone. You, who have been brought in by faith in Christ, have been brought in so tightly to God's bosom. You've been brought in so tightly into His family that you receive the same love, care, and affection that He shows to His Son. You get to call Him Abba. He gives you that grace, that blessing, that privilege. And I know in our own families, oftentimes we don't even feel like a son or a daughter. Oftentimes we, our interaction with our parents is strained. Maybe we're adopted and we've had a strained relationship throughout our entire life. I say you found the greatest family of all when you believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. You've been brought in to the true family, the family of God, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You are our Abba, our Papa, our Daddy. You ask us to call You that. And we can't fathom that, Lord. It doesn't resonate in our human relationships. We have trouble, even with our own natural-born children sometimes, we have trouble relating with them. Yet, Father, You bring us so far in. You love us so much. I pray, Lord, that we would experience that. That we would get a glimpse of that, even here and now, on the path toward our inheritance. That we wouldn't have to wait until the other side of this life 